Hello and welcome to the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning into this episode. Now today we are going to take on one of the thorniest issues in motorsport and that is the topic of balance of performance or BOP as it's often referred to. Recently I published an article about um, balance of performance and posted it on um, some uh, sports car um, Facebook fan pages uh, and the response I have to say was incredible. Um, Simply asked the question what people thought about balance of performance and I've never seen such a reaction to, um, to an article that I've written before and it was amazing how many people responded but also how 50-50 the split was between people who uh, thought balance of performance or BOP was a good thing and 50% who thought it was a very, very bad thing. So uh, I I then set to work and started to delve a little bit deeper into what balance of performance is, why we have it, the advantages of it and perhaps the disadvantages of it and also what alternatives there are. So Throughout this episode, we're going to talk all about that, what it is, so you can, if you're not aware of what balance of performance is, if you're new to motorsport, we'll try to explain it as best as possible and why, why it is implemented in a lot of forms of motorsport, particularly in the sports car racing arena. So BOP, or balance of performance, is basically a, a system which is used to level performance between vehicles taking part. So the idea is is that it keeps the it keeps the racing close and lots of different types of car can um, be involved in the sport. So you know, for example, at Le Mans, when you'll see a Ford GT racing against an Aston Martin V8 or a Porsche 911 or a Corvette or something like that. And as we'll explore throughout the um, throughout this episode, you'll see the big differences between those cars and how close they can um, compete because of the balance of performance measures. So the way that balance of performance works is, is that the wh- whoever the series race series organiser are, they will always keep a close eye on the performance of any one vehicle taking part. And if they deem that one vehicle is perhaps um, uh, performing a little bit higher than the rest of the field, they will, they will, they will basically pull the car back by either by a number of measures. So they will be looking at the data all the time. They'll be looking at acceleration, top speed, lap time, corner speed, fuel consumption. Um, all that kind of thing, and um, because over a twenty-four hour race, all of these factors come into play. And what they will try to do is, is they will try to make sure that all the cars are on as even a playing field as possible. So certain cars might have a larger fuel tank, or they might have turbo boost taken away, or they might have weight added to their car. There's lots of measures that um, the series can can use, including. Like I say, weight, either, you know, usually it, it's adding weight. Um, engine power, which can be can be controlled in a number of ways. The engine power in certain series like the World um, Touring Car Cup, um, they can adjust the engine power electronically via the engine's electronic control unit. So they can actually change the percentage of power that the engine will produce depending on the performance that they want to get that vehicle to. 
The other way is to change the um, diameter of the air restrictor on the engine. So a larger restrictor allows more air into the engine and develops more power and vice versa. Finally, and probably one of the most um, significant measures that uh, uh, a race organisers can, uh, can give to a car is by adjusting the turbo boost. And most pro drivers will tell you that if they you know, arrive at a race and they've had their turbo boost reduced in balance of performance, that can have the biggest impact on, um, on lap time as, as well. The other, the other me measures that can be used also in the World Touring Car Cup, they will they can adjust the ride height of the car so they can raise it up to slow the car down. Um, they can change the f and then uh, they can change the fuel capacity of the tank so more fuel you can go longer on a stint. They can change the rear wing height, or in the GTE uh, class at Le Mans, they can also implement and I quote any other technical measure deemed necessary. So that, that is what got to be a nice open-ended legal term there. So if they want one car to run with three wheels instead of fours, they could deem that necessary. So it leaves any, so if any car turns up with any particular advantage, they can restrict it should it need to be. So in summary, it's a way of adjusting performance of cars taking part to try and get them as level as possible, with the idea being that the racing is really, really close. So the advantages of balance of performance, well, it has been proven that balance of performance does provide close racing. In fact, a lot of the closest racing we've ever seen in particularly in sports car racing also, what we see in sports car racing is a huge variety of vehicles taking part. The other advantage of ba balance of performance is, is that it restricts elaborate development. So, a few years ago, I was listening to the, the excellent Motorsport Magazine podcast, and they were interviewing um, David Richards, who is the boss of, actually, he's the boss of Motorsport UK now as well, and he is the boss of um, ProDrive, who are a legendary motorsport um, company um, who led the Subaru World Rally program, um, they, and they still run the Aston Martin factory um, sports car team as well. And back in 2004, took um, a beautiful Ferrari 550 Maranello with Ricard Rydell, Darren Turner, and Colin McRae at the wheel. So they have an incredible history in motorsport, but most recently they've been incredibly successful leading the Aston Martin factory team with multiple Le Mans class victories with their Vantage um, GTE car. And what David, when when asked about balance of performance, David Richards um, explained that he says he says I'll give you an example. He said if one of my engineers comes to my office with uh, a, a new development on the car or a new type of a new part or, or a new new engineering solution which can save half a second a lap and it's going to cost two hundred thousand pounds um often the answer is is no now it says in most other forms of motorsport if you can buy half a second for two hundred thousand pounds you you do so but in when balance of performance is at play basically i have to tell the engineer that they they can't do they can't implement this new performance um, this new performance aspect to the car um, because it'll simply be paired back by balance of performance anyway. So 
But the key point of that story is they have saved £200,000. And that is a big part of the ethos behind balance of performance to avoid manufacturers going completely crazy and starting to spend more and more money. Because as we've seen, particularly in the top category at Le Mans, the LMP1 category, the hybrid LMP1 cars uh, of the last few years are arguably the most sophisticated and advanced racing cars ever built. And the sums of money that the manufacturers were spending basically meant that they eventually it eventually got out of control and many manufacturers had to pull the plug on their programs. So it's important to, re- to restrict the manufacturers and race teams from spending too much money. So that's a big part of the ethos behind balance of performance because there's no point spending millions of dollars in making your race car um, noticeably faster because it will be it will be pinched back anyway. So the idea is that the even smaller budget manufacturers can compete at the top level of the sport. Probably the <clears throat> the, the prime example of a successful implementation of balance of performance because as we'll talk about there are a number there are a number of good examples where balance of performance really is working very well. And there's a number of examples where it doesn't work at all. So one example where it works really, really well is in global GT3 racing. So GT3 racing is basically the kind of, if you like, the world standard for sports car racing. You can take a GT3 race car and race it all over the world in a variety of blue ribbon events. Funnily enough, one of the very few events that you can't take it to is Le Mans, but more or less anywhere else, a GT3 car, you can take it to win. And in many cases, you can take it to go for outright victory as well, which is very, very important to those taking part. So GT3 racing, it's an international category. It's recognized all around the world. It's a universal formula. So if you've bought a GT3 car, nowadays will cost over 500,000 euros to buy a GT3 car, but they are renowned for actually holding their value very, very well. So you could race a GT3 car for a couple of years and actually sell it on for not that much less than what you paid for it in the first place because there is such a wide opportunity to race the car you in nearly every country where we have motorsport you um there is always a market to sell the car on when you're buying the next model also it's a great category for the manufacturers involved in the sport because the manufacturers it's very clever the manufacturers who produce gt3 cars it's a little bit of a different category. The the manufacturers actually sell cars to race teams. So it's a little bit different in say, for example, the GTE class, which is kind of the alternative in, in at Le Mans at the 24 hours of Le Mans and in the world endurance championship, where most of the time in the GTE pro class, that is the manufacturer who's basically bankrolling the whole operation. So, um, you know, the factory Porsche team or the factory Aston Martin team or, factory Ferrari team and so on. But in GT3 it's different. Race teams will purchase cars from the manufacturer and will um, and then also have to purchase spare parts from the manufacturer and then go racing with them. And depending on how big a race team they are or the budget at play, the manufacturers will um, deploy their factory employed drivers to race for those teams. So if you look at Porsche, 
Porsche have a team of incredible sports car, professional sports car drivers, which they send all over the world to race for its customer team. So they're kind of like the ultimate customer service um, uh, executives. So it's actually as a business in Audi Sport, for example, Audi Sport are one of the most successful GT3 manufacturers, both in terms of race wins, but also financially. Because what started off as um, a, a, a division that was known as a marketing division, it's actually now moved to, it's now classed within Audi as a product division. So selling customer racing cars like the GT3 Audi RA is very much a business for Audi. And of course, the parts, it, once they've sold the car, it doesn't stop there. The spare parts and the replacement parts for these cars, there's a constant stream of revenue. So the business model really works with GT3. What also is, is, is just extraordinary is the variety of cars at play who can compete in GT3. So if you look at the 2020 list with the FIA, the governing body for motorsport, if you look at the cars that they have homologated for competition in 2020 for GT3 racing, there is a huge list of manufacturers. And I will read them out for you now. So these are the cars that you could feasibly go and buy from someone and go racing in the GT3 class. So you can buy, and I'll deep breath here, you could buy a Ferrari, Aston Martin, Maserati, Bentley, Audi, BMW, Mercedes-AMG, Honda, Porsche, Lamborghini, Nissan, McLaren, Corvette, Cadillac, Dodge, or Lexus. So 16 different manufacturers that you could feasibly go racing with in the um, in GT3 racing. Now, what's also really really uh, impressive as well is that 11 of these 16 manufacturers have a form of factory presence. So whether that be um, on-site technical support, whether it be factory drivers, or whether it be basically um, official factory teams. So if you look at the Bentley, Bentley Motorsport is is very much a factory-backed team. It's run by M Sport in Cumbria, but it is a proper factory um, factory effort. Now, what is also fascinating about GT3 is is the variety of cars at play. So of these sixty manufacturers. 10 of them use, they're all rear wheel drive, 10 of them use a front engine layout, five use a mid engine layout, and one uses a rear engine layout, which of course is the Porsche 911. So you've got all these wild varieties of cars. You could have a Lexus RCF Coupe, you could have a Cadillac, you could have a McLaren 720S, you could have all kinds of different cars. Now, of course, the road cars that all these um, vehicles are based upon are dramatically different in performance levels. I mean, the difference between a McLaren 720S and a BMW M6, for example, is, is just absolutely no comparison in performance. They're, they're worlds apart. But thanks to balance of performance, they can all battle and race together side by side all over the world. The GT3 events that you can take part in, you could go to the Bathurst 12-hour, the Nürburgring 24-hours, you could race at Macau in the Macau World Cup, you could race in the Spa 24-hour, the Daytona 24-hour and the Sebring 12-hour. So big blue ribboned events uh, as well. Now, also if you look at the business case for GT3, 
In 2016, 1,300 cars had been sold up to that point in the GT3 category. Now, to sell 1,300 500,000 euro cars in, that, in just 10 or 11 seasons is quite extraordinary. By 2018, Audi had sold over 200 examples of its RA LMS GT3. Just extraordinary. And of course, of those 200 cars, those are 200 cars that require spare parts as well. So there's a big, big business there for companies like Audi. Now, if we go back to the, the, the aspect of competition. Does balance of performance create close racing? Well, in the case of GT3, which we're talking about now, it absolutely does. If you look at the Spa 24-hour um, from, uh, from 2019, one of the blue ribbon races in the, the global GT3 category, the top 12 in the... Now, bear in mind, this is a 24-hour race. The top 12 were within a lap of each other. There were, in the top 12, there were six different manufacturers. So there were Honda, Mercedes, BMW, Porsche, uh, Bentley, and Lamborghini. Also, if you look at the driver lineup in the top 12, I mean... It's like a who's who of sports car racing. So you have all these fantastic drivers in very equal cars, all with very different configurations as well. So I think if you were to put the case forward for is balance of performance a good thing, using GT3 racing as an example would be a very good thing to use. Now, disadvantages <laughs> of balance of performance. For anyone who's a fan of motorsport and particularly of sports car racing, you'll know just how polarizing the the debate of balance of performance is. Now, there are those who don't like it, really don't like it. And that's and 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 it is the the interesting thing about the balance of performance debate is is it's really easy to understand both parts of the um, uh, argument. That's why it's such an ongoing debate. The disadvantages of balance of performance are, well, what, well the first part is that it's, it, it can be seen by both the, the, the diehard fan and the casual observer as a little bit artificial, a little bit contrived. If you were to apply it to other sports, uh, it, would be, it would be seen as very artificial. My biggest, my biggest concern with balance of performance is is how it caveats exceptional personal performances, particularly the drivers. So I feel really, really sorry for a lot of the drivers when, you know, they've just won the Le Mans 24 hours. They've just won the Daytona 24 hour or the Sebring 12 hour, whatever. They've just had the biggest race of their career. And, you know, their, perform their performance may well and often is caveated by the car that they are driving. Now, that's not new in motorsport. You know, a lot of people say, you know, Sebastian Vettel wouldn't have won four world titles without a Red Bull. You know, Jensen Button wouldn't won a world title without a Braun. Michael Schumacher wouldn't have won without a Ferrari and so on. And pff, I, I personally don't don't sign up to, to, to that view. The, all of these people found themselves in that position for very good reason. But in, in sports car racing, and with ba when balance of performance is at play, it's a little bit different because if you're in a car that 
clearly seems to have um, an advantage in the balance of performance setting or if you're in a car that doesn't have the the advantage and you've got absolutely no chance to win that is when we run into problems so if you look at last year in the uh, 2019 in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship if you look at the GTLM class which is the the premier GT is the professional GT category with manufacturer involvement and Porsche were really the dominant force throughout the season and um, you know series stalwart Corvette for example never really challenged for victory um, much across the season and if you look at Porsche and you look at particularly the performances of Lawrence Vantor and Errol Bamber who eventually won the championship in quite convincing fashion it could off you know throughout the seasons there were always comments about how the Porsche had an advantage on balance of performance over the Corvette or over the BMW in, in particular and the problem is that, that that might well be the case but you've still got to get in and drive the car and you, you feel sorry for, for Errol and Lawrence who have driven their absolute heart out they've driven harder than any than anyone on the track and they're uh, you know all of a sudden everyone's saying that you know they they've only won because they, they were their car was was given a, an unfair advantage by balance of performance so I think but also you look at the teams you know if you've got a team, over 24 hours, you've got a lot of pit stops. So if you've got a team that executes that pit stop 5% better than the rest of the pit lane every single time, that's going to add up to an enormous advantage at the end of the race and enough to get you um, to get you the victory. Also, if you look from a strategy point of view, if you can deploy the right strategy, it could be night and day different. So... It, I think one of the biggest disadvantages of BOP is it kind of puts a cloud over a lot of personal performances that deserve full credit and they don't get it. The other more obvious thing about balance of performances is that it, it, it penalises technical progress. So the example of ProDrive and Aston Martin with the engineer coming into his boss's office and saying, look at this, I can make the car go half a second faster and he's told to, to go and make a cup of tea. Also, the also rewards if you've come out um, out of the blocks with a car that is really not been engineered very well, it's not performing very well, and you get a lovely leg up, you get a bit of extra turbo boost, or you get a, a bigger fuel tank, or whatever it might be. Uh, and if you've been the imagine if you're the engineer and you've designed that you've done your job properly, uh, and it it doesn't seem to make much of a difference. So internally. It's, it's certainly internally within the sport, it, it, it comes under a lot of criticism. And also, if balance, we, we look at it in GT3 racing, when it's deployed well, when balance of performance is deployed correctly, you get such, you know, like the Spa 24 hours, top 12 within a lap, six different manufacturers, fantastic, really, really good, brilliant. But if you look at it when balance of performance is not deployed correctly it can be embarrassing just how bad it is now if you look at Le Mans with this is where actually in Le Mans in the GTE class is when we've really seen we've kind of seen two sides to the coin because GTE is the most competitive particularly GTE Pro is the most competitive class at Le Mans so you've got Ferrari, Porsche, 
BMW, Corvette, and so on, all battling with fully professional, Aston Martin as well, fully professional drivers battling wheel to wheel for all 24 hours. And we've seen the final, we've seen it, the GTE Pro battle come down to the last 10 minutes of the race as well. So clearly, balance of performance is working to a degree. And when you get it right, fantastic. However, when you get it wrong, it is really, really obvious. And it's it's hard for the casual viewer and actually, to be honest, the diehard fan to really comprehend at times. So if you look at, at Le Mans, two, there's a few examples, particularly Aston Martin. So Aston Martin in 2018 came out with a new version of its, of its very successful Vantage car, but a completely new car, new engine, new everything. Now, nowadays with balance of performance, series organizers tend to go more on the conservative side. When a new car comes out, they really want to have a few races to get a good feel for that car before they can get the, the balance of performance correct. So they always err on the side of caution, and that being the slower side. Now in 2018, the Aston Martin was so far behind its competition, it was just embarrassing. Now, nowadays, a few, you know, no, less than a year later, it's winning races, it's doing really, really well. Same, you know, similar car. 2019 was arguably even worse, because in 2019, the Aston Martin Vantage um, with um, Marcus, um, Marco Sorensen behind the wheel, was you know it set pole position with a fantastic lap got a clear lap it was clear to see um very very close with the rest of the field but just got a clear lap and just put it all together and that could be seen from the data but aston martin were hit with a balance of performance adjustment before the race between qualifying and the race so they were paired back and in the race aston martin were absolutely nowhere they were the the porsche the ferrari the the fords they were all miles in the distance from the poor old Aston Martin after them setting pole position. One of the most famous examples of balance of performance not working and being influenced by something called sandbagging is the uh, at Le Mans again, again in the GTE Pro class in 2016. So in 2016, Ford returned to the Le Mans 24 hours 50 years after their first victory with the original Ford GT race car that won it on for the first time with Bruce McLaren and Chris Amon. So they came back, 50th anniversary, the big return. They developed a new Ford GT from the ground up, developed it in secret at their Dearborn headquarters with a small Skunk Works team and came out with this beautiful race car that actually emulated the shape of the original Ford GT quite closely. And the car that they produced, the road car, was basically only there to homologate the race car. So they had to make a certain amount of road cars to qualify their race car. And these cars were sold at £450,000 each to chosen buyers. Now, the big, the big thing was, was that this, obviously this Ford GT was quite different. It was mid-engined, 3.5 litre, twin turbo. It was a, basically what would we now be, we would call as a homologation special. So it was a race car for the road. And you're putting this car up against much more humble, um, much more humble machinery. 
So if you look at, like, for example, if you look at the road car base in the GTE class, so if you look at a road Ford GT, it does not to 60 in 3 seconds. The equivalent Corvette, 4.2 seconds. If you look at the horsepower of the 4GT of the road car, 647. Its rival Ferrari, 661. Some of the other cars, below 500. Top speed, 4GT, 216 miles an hour. The slowest car in the class, 180 miles an hour. So there's a huge difference in performance between the road cars that these, that these vehicles are based upon. So having being able to balance them was quite a challenge. Now, sandbagging, what is sandbagging? Well, basically sandbagging is a method that teams will use to try to cheat the balance of performance method. So what they do is, is they deliberately run slowly, they hide performance, whether that be running the car with a full tank or you know, running the car with less power or just telling the drivers to drive slower. And they then, so then the idea is, is that by running slowly, they get given a balance of performance break from the series organizer. So more turbo boost, bigger air restrictor, less weight, whatever it might be. And at Le Mans in 2016, we saw one of the most blatant examples of sandbagging ever seen since BOP and balance of performance has been implemented. So in the final test before the 2016 Le Mans 24 hours, Porsche were fastest with its 911 RSR, with a lap time of 3 minutes 55.4 seconds. Ford were only 0.6 seconds behind, and Ferrari only 0.5 seconds behind. Very, very close. Bearing in mind, Le Mans nearly a 4 minute lap, that you could hardly separate anything. So, between that, you would think, these cars are really equal, we're going to see a brilliant battle here. However, in qualifying a couple of weeks later, Porsche, um, with with um, they went 0.5 seconds faster, which is to be expected. Qualifying lap, you you trim the car out, you you really go for that last that last millimeter, that every last bit of the track to get that extra that lap time. So Porsche improved by half a second. Ford improved by 4.8 seconds. Ferrari improved by 4.3 seconds. So, you know, you do not make those type of improvements overnight in motorsport. So quite clearly, you know, Porsche had been hustled by both Ford and Ferrari. Of course, Ford would go on to win that 2016 race and would win on their 50th anniversary uh, and, and all of the marketing benefit that came with it. And all the cynical... The cynical voices in the sport said that the race had been effectively fixed, Ford had cheated, you know, the politics of the balance of performance and all these sorts of things. And this is where balance of performance really is bad for the sport because these sorts of discussions, that's not the narrative we want to tell to people that effectively the result can be more or less fixed. Um, that's not what we want to see. And also it's not fair on the drivers either, come back to it again. The drivers that drove those Fords drove just as hard as anybody else. So also you have to look at how balance of performance, if you don't get it right, you can alienate your customers or both your fans and your participating manufacturers. So if you look at the 2018 to 2019 uh, FIA World Endurance Championship Super Season, look at 
look at the results. Porsche won three times. Ferrari and Aston Martin won two, two times each. Ford only won once, and that was all the way back in 2018 at Spa in May. And BMW didn't win at all in that season. At the end of that 2019 super season, which concluded at Le Mans, both BMW and Ford left the championship for good. But BMW still continue on in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship with their same car, the BMW M8, and have won the Daytona 24 Hours twice in the last two years. So if the balance of performance is deployed correctly and there's opportunity to win races, particularly big races like the Daytona 24 Hour, manufacturers will remain engaged. But if you don't get the balance of performance right and they deem it to be unfair, you are going to run into problems. Now, how do you avoid sandbagging? Well, that's the million dollar question. How do you spot that really clever race teams are um, you know, deliberately running slowly during practice, qualifying, and then um, getting a getting a and then showing their real pace in the race all of a sudden. Well, it's all about data, data, data. You've got to be able, to, you know, that all the series will use data, everything at their disposal to be dis, to, to be able to set the balance of performance and to make sure that every car is as equal in performance as possible. One idea that I personally have is um, basically forcing the teams to publish the fuel load that the car is running with. So then it can be taken into account just um, how fast or not the car is. Because, of course, if you fill a car to the absolute limit, you know, if you fill the tank completely full compared to running it in qualifying with just a couple of gallons in the tank, the difference is enormous in lap time. So given the series definitely have the ability to monitor the amount of fuel that's going into each car and perhaps caveating lap times in testing or even in practice by the fuel load on board or even looking into the ECU data to see how much power is is being deployed um, by the engine. Again, it's not an easy, it's really not an easy um, thing to police and this is why the critics of balance of performance will um, that, that's one of their big um, big concerns. So, you know, there's lots of advantages to balance of performance, but lots of pitfalls as well. But what are the alternatives if you don't implement balance of performance, if you don't implement these measures to, uh, to open up a door for lots of manufacturers, lots of type of vehicles to come on board and compete like we see in GT3, what are the other alternatives, or, more, or more, more importantly, what are the other successful alternatives that have proven to work? Well, one alternative to balance of performance is the, the unique rule set used in the British Touring Car Championship. And for the last, the last few years, the action in the British Touring Car Championship has been absolutely fantastic. Now, back in the 1990s, the British Touring Car Championship well, it it, it, it kind of lived and died by the sword because in the 1990s, the freedom um, for manufacturers to spend, them, spend themselves into oblivion was extraordinary. So you had manufacturers spending £10 million a year on British touring car racing. I mean, have a think about that. And eventually it became too it just became ridiculous and by the turn of the millennium the the series had nearly collapsed completely and 
from that point on, it really had to reinvent itself throughout the twenty, throughout the you know, from the for the next decade, from the year two thousand up to about 2010, 2011, it had to work bit by bit in reinventing itself and what it was. And since twenty eleven, the um, British Touring Car Championship have implemented rules called the NGTC, which stands for Next Generation Touring Car. And the theory with NGTC is all about common parts. So trying to implement as many, you know, basically trying to take out as many variables as possible in in the event um, or in, in, in the name of reducing costs. So if you look at the, the common components on a British touring car right now, it's absolutely extraordinary. So I'm going to read out the list of common components. So this is the way that this works is that if you're competing in the British Touring Car Championship, you have to order exactly the same part from exactly the same supplier as everyone else in the field. So you have, these are the common parts, the turbo, wastegate, intercooler, electronic control unit, dash, power management system, gearbox, fuel tank, differential, front and rear subframe, steering, brakes, clutch, wheels, dampers and suspension. So a lot of, I mean, most of the key components of the car. Interestingly, with the engine of the car, you can either use an off-the-shelf Toka um, Swindon-developed engine, or you can develop your own engine as long as it comes from the manufacturer family of car that you're using. The engine's a 2-litre turbo with about 350 brake horsepower. So... The idea is is that the the level the playing field is level in terms of cost in terms of the build cost of the car, but there is a little bit of freedom if you want to hire really clever engineers. If you want to spend that money, you can. Um, if you want to hire the very finest drivers, you can. But the uh, that's that's kind of up to the the team taking part. And if you look across a British touring car season. The variety of winners is enormous, the the close competition, the close racing. Also, the cars are incredibly simple in terms of aerodynamics, so the cars can follow each other very, very closely. Also, what um, the British Touring Car Championship implements is a success ballast system. So, um, each in each for each round, there are three races. When the before race one, the championship order is looked at, and the person at the top of the championship will be given the maximum amount of weight for race one, which is sixty kilograms. And this is goes all the way down to the person in tenth in the championship, who will have six kilograms on board. And after race one, this will be readjusted based on the results of race one. And after race two, it will be readjusted again. So. The, the idea is, is that if you're winning a race, you will be immediately hit with a success ballast, which makes sure that you aren't, you aren't, you're, nobody is ever going to get away from the pack. So, and the system's completely level and completely fair. And clearly, this, this formula works. If you look at the num the different types of car that are in the British Touring Car Championship, we have BMW, Honda, Infiniti, Vauxhall, Volkswagen, Toyota, Mercedes, Audi, Hyundai, and Ford. And four of these manufacturers 
are entered under the manufacturers themselves and the others are entered independently and there's a good balance of of manufacturer teams and independent teams that can compete side by side with one another and also there is a, a, a specific title that can be won for independent teams as well so there's very much a business case for a private race team to go and compete in the British Touring Car Championship. So the British Touring Car Championship has some of the closest racing in the world, but does not implement balance of performance. However, you have rear wheel drive BMWs racing with front wheel drive Hondas, racing with Vauxhall Astras, Toyota Corollas, Mercedes, Audi S3, you name it. There's a plethora of cars taking part. So balance of performance isn't always necessary, but there are times where there are cases of it really working, cases where it's not working. So obviously it's a very complex debate and hopefully across this episode I've been able to um, lay out the advantages and disadvantages and examples of it working and examples of it not working. In conclusion, I, I actually do agree with the balance of performance and the reason why is that I agree that it, it, it obviously it must be deployed correctly, but that's the same for any real set in motorsport. I think it's really important in the in in current times when we're entering a time where auto manufacturers are in one of the most difficult periods in their history, where they're implementing brave new technologies, electric, hybrid, etc., into a world where the infrastructure isn't quite there yet. And they're having to invest billions of dollars to make that happen. So motorsport, motorsport can be treated in one of two ways. It can be treated as a really cost-effective way to promote the technology. You just have to look at Formula E for that, where cost is actually really well contained. And hey presto, you've got all the manufacturers there taking part with good drivers and so on. Um, or... Motorsport can be looked at as really an unnecessary extravagance. And the global motorsport industry has to be very clear and very careful to make sure they sit on the right side of that argument. Because if you think, if you're in, you're in the boardroom of BMW, Audi, Porsche, Ferrari, they're sitting looking at, the, looking at a sheet of paper looking where they're going to spend these multi-million pounds and where are they going to spend it. And we need to make sure that motorsport is at the front of that. And clearly, manufacturers are still motivated to spend money on motorsport. You ju as I say, you just have to look at Formula E to, 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 get that, um, to, to get that example. So the money is there to be spent, but it's the, the, they're thinking a lot more clearly about where that money is spent. So... I think where I stand in balance of performance is that it's a good thing because the more, the easier that you can make it for a manufacturer to come in, maybe they've got a slightly different style of car. So if you look at, say, you are Lexus and you don't, you don't have a particularly sporting reputation, but you want to change that. Maybe your car that you're basing upon isn't perhaps you know, in the road car base, it's not as competitive as a McLaren, for example. But with balance of performance, they can build a race car that will be able to race on a level playing field. Look at Bentley, for example. 
Bentley won the Bathurst, their biggest biggest race in a glittering, um, you know, glittering motorsport history. The, the 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 one that they really always wanted to win, the Bathurst 12 hour, and they did that this year, and they beat the might of Porsche and Mercedes AMG, Honda, BMW, name you name it, they beat them all, and. Really, if you look at the the road car that that's based upon, it's not what you would think as a, a a good base for a race car. So I think that if implemented correctly, balance of performance gives the opportunity for lots more um, people to come to the table. However, how it's deployed needs to be constantly developed and constantly improved. So I would love to hear what you think personally about balance of performance. Do you love it? Do you hate it? Let me know. Um, you can let me know through my Instagram, which is at Peter Mackay Motorsport. You can let me know through a Twitter, which is at Mackay Podcast, or via Facebook, which is the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast. Thank you very much for listening to this episode on balance of performance, and I look forward to speaking to you again very soon.